Welcome to Unpacking Ideas, the podcast where each episode we take a look at a different piece of writing and try to unpack some of the major themes and ideas. This week we're taking a look at Consider the Lobster by David Foster Wallace. Wallace was, as many people know, the author of Infinite Jest and a prolific fiction writer, but he also wrote nonfiction and wrote for several magazines. And this article originally appeared in Gourmet Magazine in 2004. Today, helping me unpack this essay was Danny Jamirez and Manny Caride. This was our first ever three-person podcast discussion, and I think it was a success. We got into all kinds of stuff. We talked about David Foster Wallace's thoughts on commercial tourism, the ethics behind boiling and eating lobster, uh, how the language that we use affects the way that we think about animals, and how future generations might view the way that we currently treat animals. So now I bring you my discussion with Danny and Manny on Consider the Lobster. So, yeah, today we're doing this piece, Consider the Lobster by David Foster Wallace. And, yeah, I was doing a little little research about this piece. I guess he wrote this for uh, Gourmet Magazine in, like, 2004, uh, which I was talking to my roommate about. And he was saying, because my roommate's actually a journalist, and he does some stuff in, like, food magazines and stuff. And he was saying Gourmet used to be a pretty pretty big magazine and kind of a conservative magazine as well. So while I was reading this piece, I was kind of imagining like my grandma, like looking for like Christmas recipes or something. And then like coming across this piece about like the morality of eating lobsters. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. And <laughs> <laughs> 2004 too, like that's, that's a long, that was, that's, a, that's a long, long time ago. Yeah. 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 And like, had you guys ever uh, read anything in Gourmet or come across that magazine? Absolutely. Oh, my goodness. Yes, I just see it all the time in the grocery store when I was younger. Okay, nice. And it had, all, it had like, all the fancy kind of, like, Martha Stewart-style, like, um, Thanksgiving dinners in the front page. Mm. Yeah, like, pumpkin soups, how to serve your guests something in this gourd. I'm like, <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> right. But I never really read the articles. I only finally looked for the pictures. Of course. Right. <laughs> the article, that, that article was, it was... Uh, an education to say the least you go down the whole rabbit hole of like mm. how lobsters used to be for the poor. It was just for trash. They wouldn't even feed it to like, they were like, they were considered it like bad form to, to feed it to like prisoners and whatnot. It was like feeding rat, like feeding a rat to a prisoner. I was like, Oh damn. How, how the, how the attitude of, has changed of the fellow lobster crustacean. Right. Yeah, that is really interesting. He kind of gets into like the history of um, like eating lobster in America and how it used to be just this like, yeah, kind of like peasant food and they'd actually just like feed it to the prisoners. Um, and it was, yeah, I, I think part of it too was like it used to be, it used to be prepared by like killing the lobster first and then like preserving it in a can or something, which apparently was a lot less uh tasty and yeah and then eventually it kind of some transition happened and, and it started becoming like food for like the upper class and you know like today it's kind of uh, i think he says in the essay it's kind of like on par with 
stake in terms of like, um, you know, being kind of a, a ritzier food or, or a special occasion type of food. Yeah. But yeah, I thought that was interesting too, that, that kind of the history of lobster as being more of like a lower class food and how that's kind of changed as well. Um, yeah. I don't know how it changed or why it changed. Cause I know like in different parts of the world, like we have friends who would go down to Ecuador and we have like lobsters just crawling on the beach and people just pick it up and everybody eats lobster. Like it's not that, you know, not a high class situation. It's just a thing, but they can charge American tourists more money because they think it's a luxurious situation. And I don't know if there's like a shortage of lobster. Yeah. I mean, just in general, in Maine, I guess. Right. Yeah. Well, I think, I think you're right. I think supply and demand has a lot to do with it. Cause I was doing some research too. And apparently like the Romans, like the ancient Romans ate lobster too. And it was kind of a delicacy, but I think part of that was because like they had to be imported. So it was kind of a rare. And actually nowadays I've heard that like the lobster populations have like grown a lot and they kind of have an overproduction. So, uh, it actually costs a lot less to, you know, to, to catch the lobsters and everything because they have, you know, there's so much supply, but I guess that it still hasn't really changed the prices. So I guess somebody in the middle right now is just making a bunch of money. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, maybe we could back up a little bit and talk about, cause before he, I think, I think David Foster Wallace's kind of, uh, mission or assignment for this piece was to write about this uh thing called the Maine lobster festival which is this uh lobster festival that's every held every year in maine and yeah it's kind of interesting because he starts off by talking about this festival specifically and kind of like what it what it was like being there and then he kind of eases into talking about lobsters more generally and then he kind of eases into talking about like the ethics behind eating lobster. But, um, but yeah, so this probably isn't where we'll spend a lot of time, but I thought it'd be interesting to kind of touch on this festival a little bit. So it's called the Maine Lobster Festival, and um, he kind of paints a very unpleasant uh, picture of it. Did you guys get the right. same? <laughs> I did. It's funny. It's a nonprofit, right? And so mm-hmm. um, the money goes toward buildings and stuff, and, and then they try to promote the, the idea of uh, saving the ocean, which is ironic for me. It's yeah. ironic because the things that they're doing to um, to catch the lobsters is in, in, it sounds like it's in direct contradiction to helping the water. Mm. Yeah. When um, pet veterinarians put on a, a barbecue to for like as a benefit, it's like, right. <laughs> right. But, but I did get the impression that the writer was trying to, he was talking about how, um, how uh, lobster is sort of a delicacy at the same time it's eating, it's being eaten out of styrofoam and plastic. Mm. So he was like kind of mixing the the two like cultures of like people who just are sloppy and messy, but then they're eating something that's so expensive and such a delicacy within our country. So it's very kind of like, I mean, I like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I noticed that too. There was that kind of juxtaposition between like, yeah, lobster is this apparently like, you know, high class food, but, it's being eaten by the ton in these like out of these like styrofoam containers with people with like plastic forks and it's like yeah uh yeah maybe i can read this little paragraph here i thought he kind of encapsul- 
and captured it pretty well in, in this. So he says, uh, this is when he's describing the festival. Um, he says, amid crowds of people slapping canal zone mosquitoes as they eat deep fried Twinkies and watch Professor Paddywhack on six foot stilts in a raincoat with plax- plastic lobsters protruding from all directions on springs, terrifying children. <laughs> So, oh. <laughs> oh, so yeah, he, right. He kind of <laughs> it, it kind of sounded to him like a cross between like an overly crowded Disneyland or Disney World, and like maybe yeah. like a um like a jazz oh. jazz and ribs fest or like some other summer festival. What I heard from that was I, I feel I feel like after I read the entire article, mm-hmm. I kind of got the impression that the, that the his name is David, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. David, that David was trying to explain to people how um, hypocrisy works in terms of like, um, how, even when it, we'll talk about that later, right? Even when it came to um, uh, the, the the gourmet aspect of like uh, boiling, boiling the lobster mm-hmm. and how you get the, the lid on and walk away because something inside you feels like there's something wrong here. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're not having the full experience of what gourmet is supposed to be. At the same time, at the lobster fest, you're experiencing a, a you know, like you, like you said, a, a luxury dish, but in such a very low class manner. Mm, so I think right. he's trying to explain people that uh, you walk into a situation without, and you're not even, you're not, you don't have full perspective of like what's really going. You're ignoring part of it. I don't, I don't know. I, I, that's what I feel. I feel like we're, we're justifying actions so we can feel better. But like you said, the kids are being scared by these sort of like primitive creatures that um and yet, yet we're all accelerating it it's yeah. so very very bizarre have you ever right. been to a lobster fest you're from new england no no you got you haven't i've been to uh I, i've been to a um i've never been to a lobster fest i'm from ohio originally i've been to we had something called the jazz and ribs festival which speaking of a kind of juxtaposition thinking like think about it now it's it's kind of a weird clash of cultures uh because you know it was like Jazz music was the entertainment, but then the the kind of uh, main food that everybody was eating were this like Texas barbecue. So you know you had these people like I think half the people were there to like listen to to jazz music, half the people were there to kind of like eat the eat the barbecue. And yeah, I don't know. It is a kind of a weird combination of things. I don't. I don't necessarily group those things. I kind of think of jazz music as like a candlelit club and like, you know, people wearing like suits and dresses and stuff. And, uh, the, the rip jazz and ribs festival just, yeah, it kind of, it's a similar kind of clash of cultures. Like a mariachi band, like a mariachi cake fest. Like when you think of Mexican mariachis, you're not thinking of like, mm, let me get this angel food cake. It doesn't really cross. <laughs> right. So funny. Yeah. right. It's like like drinking wine out of like a like a plastic cup or something. <laughs> oh death. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um but cool. And and briefly too, he talks a little bit I, I thought it's cool, you know, he's David Foster Wallace, he's kinda known for his footnotes. Um and he writes a lot of footnotes in this. And I think he uses the footnotes as his place to kind of like insert his opinion a little bit because, you know, in a traditional journalistic sense, I, you know, you're probably supposed to be more objective and just say like, this is what I saw at this festival. But he uses these footnotes to kind of like 
you know, insert his opinion every now and then. And I know I thought he had some interesting opinions about tourism. Did did you guys uh do you read that footnote as well? Um, so maybe I'll just kind of read what he says. He says, uh, to be a mass tourist for me is to become a pure late date American, alien, ignorant, greedy for something you cannot ever have, disappointed in a way you can never admit. It is to spoil by way of sheer ontology, the very unspoiledness you are there to experience. It is to impose yourself on places that in all non-economic ways would be better, realer without you. Yeah, right. (laughs) <laughs> um, and then, yeah, and then he says, as a tourist, you become economic, economic, economically significant, but existentially loathsome, an insect on a dead thing. Uh, oh my! Yeah, so yeah. He, he really uh, yeah. is, is not a fan of the um, kind of like mass tourism. But I don't know yes. what what was your reaction to to reading that dead fucking on we both lived in florida we both lived an hour away from orlando we know how it is you have to learn how to say get out of my way in like five different languages mm. yeah it's <laughs> you know that you know you know new york is very very much that when the all the college kids come and they invade the city and they rip it apart and then they leave mm. and so in their minds they're adding to the culture but what they're doing is they're leaving a mess and that's what i hear when i hear someone say tourism is causes more harm than does good yeah, it's it's an odd it's an odd thing because I think the pl- the reason that the place becomes a place that tourists want to go to is because there's something special about it or there's something cool cool about it that's like okay, there's a really cool I don't know, there's a cool beach here, say. So it attracts all of these people, but I think the irony he's pointing to is like by going there yourself and by, you know, thousands of other people going there as well, you kind of ruin that special thing that everybody is there to see. Uh, There lies lies the problem why most people don't go vegan because they live in this world of singularity. Like I'm not the problem. It's not me. I'm not doing it. And then they go to like that really famous beach that's in like Thailand. That's that um, Leonardo DiCaprio filmed on. Um, I'm not, I'm not familiar, but yeah, you know what I'm talking about. There's a video, there's a movie where he went to Thailand and they went to like this beautiful beach that was like, and it was like, uh, it was just like a little, a little community on this note on this beach that no one really knew about. And then people started to go to that beach consistently. Mm. And then now the beach and the ecosystem is completely fucking ruined because the single up, everybody's like, Oh, it's not me. I'm not doing anything. I'm just going on vacation. And then they end up messing up the entire ecosystem of one type of beach same thing will go for like veganism or is like oh no it's just i'm not gonna one lobster is not gonna kill the planet but mm-hmm. then everybody thinks the exact same way and then it, that's how terrorism goes too like you go in there and you think that you're you're going there to create to get the vibe to get the energy of something that you don't have in your house like why people go to um go to italy and you're like, oh, I'm going to I'm going to eat, pray, love my way through this entire experience. And they only eat at the Olive Garden in Italy. I was like, brah, <laughs> it's like you're not really getting you're not going there for the for the experience. But even then, if you do, you you're not special. They have a whole ecosystem for people just like you because you're you come in 
and they're maintaining <laughs> the 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 specialty of what they what they're known for. So like something for people to travel to a lobster fest will probably kind of do the same thing. That's why they they started <laughs> eating lobster out of styrofoam because it's the only sustainable way of keeping up with the masses. Well, yeah, which she did. Yeah, well, I, I like I like that, and that like maybe, yeah, you know, like if it was just one person being a tourist, then you know it's not like one person is going to wreck uh, that awesome beach in Thailand. But I think the problem is when you have thousands of tourists, they just yeah, it, it's only sustainable, you know. And I think the maybe the point you're making with veganism is that you know if it was one person eating a lobster, uh, it would be one thing. But when you have, you know, thousands of people and he gives some statistics in here uh, about kind of how much lobster is consumed every year, but it's like, um, here we go. Uh, 80 million pounds of lobster. Um, so yeah, just the point that like when everybody's doing, doing it, it, it adds up really quick. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that was, a bit about the lobster festival and he kind of transitions from talking about this festival more broadly into just talking about lobsters and and then yeah and then he kind of gets into talking about the history of how they've been prepared over the years in, in terms of um or how they've been killed and, and eaten so he talks about uh like we were saying at the, at the beginning that uh for a lot of the American history, they were more of a kind of lower class uh, meal. And now, since they've kind of been boiled boiled alive, part of the allure with that is that the the meat is very fresh because, you know, they're basically like killed on the spot. So that might be part of the reason why they have, um, you know. Sounds, be- sounds so psycho. <laughs> <laughs> right, it's like right. they're boiled alive, so it's super fresh. I'm like, Okay. Right. Let's, let's let's dissect that. <laughs> right, right. Well, so yeah, so I guess at, you know, from a purely uh, you know taste perspective, I guess um, that was one of the things that changed. Is you know, it's been a long time since I've eaten lobster, but um, I, I from reading this, I gather that it's lobster is a lot more tasty than like when you boil it alive than if you kind of put it in these. Uh, these cans and try to kind of preserve it, I think is what he was saying. Um, which is kind of why they, why they do that now. Um, they do it now because, um, they can transport it easily when it's alive, mm. which is what they didn't do back then. They were just going to preserve it for the local area. But now since this gets traveled all over the world, um, sending it alive, it's easier. Mm. Interesting. Well, there's also yeah. been, um, I think even in our lifetime, because I remember f- as a kid, like going to the supermarket and you would see the lobster in the in the glass. And I don't know that if they have that anywhere. I mean, I don't I haven't seen it in years. And. Yeah, I think the I was trying to f- do some like sleuthing to kind of figure out what happened there. And some of the more, uh, I guess, optimistic people were saying, you know, it's uh they stopped doing it for kind of humane reasons and some of the more pessimistic were, people were saying they stopped doing it because uh of financial reasons like it, it costs 
it costed more money to kind of like keep the lobsters alive in supermarkets. So I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. There's probably there's probably more than one factor. Oh yeah. Because when you sell to a board of people that own a, a store, a grocery store, you're talking to a bunch of personalities. One is more financially focused, and one is more I don't know, <laughs> humanistic. Humanistic. Sure, sure, right. Well, yeah, and every kind of business owner kind of has those, like that line running between them of like, I've got to make, you know, there's my profit margins. And then there's also like, <laughs> as a human, like, what am I okay to do? And what am I okay not to do? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, he, Oh, the angels. <laughs> <laughs> right. See, he says, he says a little bit, uh, this was a little bit later, but he talked about how, um, you know, he says one of the things that makes lobsters significant is, that it's not only that you're you know kind of like killing the animal to eat it, but it's that like you're doing it in real time, or like in this case, somebody's kind of doing it right in front of you. Uh, so that's you know a lot different than the way that we usually eat meat, or you know that the most people usually eat meat is that it's done, you know, hundreds, maybe sometimes thousands of miles away behind closed doors, and then you know it shows up at our supermarkets and doesn't even really resemble an animal by the time. So I think he's kind of talking about this. There's a kind of uh, cognitive dissonance in, you know, kind of going to the grocery store and, and buying meat versus here where it's like, oh, you're actually, you know, physically putting this lobster in a, in a boiling uh, pot. And he's saying it kind of cuts both ways because from one, one standpoint, like if you're going to do it, like you should be the one doing it or it should be done out in the open versus the kind of like, I guess, more cowardly way of, of eating an animal is to, you know, be like, I would never do it. I would, I could never kill an animal, but like, I'm perfectly happy having somebody else do it behind closed doors and kind of not hearing about it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know personally for me, I... I, I think it's, I don't know, this may be controversial, but I think it's more ethical to to hunt than to uh, buy something that was raised in a factory farm. Um, and I mean, I guess it's on degrees of, you know, in, in ethics, but like, yeah, I think there is something, like I actually have been watching uh, Survivor season one. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of a bar embarrassing thing to admit on itself. But my roommate was like, he loves that show. And he's just like, you've never seen it? So we've been watching it. And one of the things that happens there is they're like rewarded some chickens. And this girl who, uh, she's not a vegetarian and, you know, eats meat. But like on the show, she like refuses to like be a part of the killing of this chicken or to do it herself or to even watch it happen. So there's a certain cognitive dissonance, I think, that maybe a lot of us have is that, you know, it's like if we actually had to kill the animals ourselves, a lot of us wouldn't do it. But, um, you know, we're kind of perfectly happy having somebody else do that, you know, behind closed doors. I think it's also a cultural thing. Um, like if you, like in, in America, like it, this is really normal, right? In America, everything gets hidden behind closed doors. 
Um, so as long as my hands aren't dirty, I feel my conscience is clean because being both of us are Hispanic. So I've seen my grandmother murder a chicken, mm. kill a chicken. So in our culture, even though I wouldn't do it myself because I, I just don't want to do it, um, I can understand if I was raised around it more and more, how it would become more normalized for me versus in regular American culture. Um, that's not even an option. But yet it's happening, but somebody else is doing it for you. So I think culturally, the people can become, it can be, they can be desensitized to the emotional part of it eventually over time. And yeah. so that's a, that's one way to look at it. Cause you say cognitive dissonance, I think it's, very, it's just hypocritical. Like you, you won't do it, but you'll eat the animal. Um, so it's very like the lower end of like the, of what I believe people to be cowards. Like in like you said, I, I, I do agree that if you're going to do it, which I still don't agree you just kill any animals, but if you do it, if you do it and then eat it, then on the spectrum of acceptability for me ethically, that would be the best option. Sure, <laughs> However, sure. no. Killing yeah. animals. <laughs> sure. Well, yeah. Oh, yeah. Go ahead, uh, Danny. Do you have something to say to it? I mean, it's like I grew up in uh, a hunt family like my grandfather used to take us hunting almost every other weekend did i shoot anything no because i ain't got time for it even when i was like 11 years old but i grew up in that like i had cousins who had farms and they had pigs so i got really desensitized to the killing of things at a very young age and then my grandmother on my on the mexican side she would go chase the chickens, grab them by the neck and, you know, click them and all that stuff. So it was really, I was really desensitized until someone said something to me that made me like, Oh shit. You know, like when you see the chicken and you're, and it's running, you know, you're like, Oh, it's afraid. Like it's running for its life. Mm. Or when you see the pig, like trying to squirm out of your arms, it's not uncomfortable. It's fighting for its life. You know, like the same thing goes for, you know, lobsters too, like you read in the article, it's like they have to clamp their, their, their claws up because they're, they'll tear each other up in the tank, like in the grocery stores, Mm -hmm. because they're fighting for their lives. And it's when that, when that cognitive dissonance met with the idea that, Oh no, the chicken isn't running away because it's funny. It's run, it's running, it's running for its life. That's when the thing started to click. And I was like, Oh shit. That's a whole other thing. When you see like videos or movies or pigs and cows or sheep are trying to trying to maneuver away from things, they're they're trained in their mind to only go from flight or fight. And they're only going into the or their one minute they're a happy go lucky lamb, and the next thing you know, they're 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 fighting for their life. And it blows your brain apart a little bit. And if that's kind of like when it comes to lobster too, because then people always talk about like, Oh, the lobster doesn't have this receptor in their head or it doesn't have this, it doesn't have that. But then like, like Manny said, like if, if it doesn't have all of that, then why do you have to leave the room when you boil it alive? Like, why do you feel that, that thing inside of you that you can't sit around for it? Cause you know that a sentient creature is fighting for its life and it's moving and it's clanking its hands against the boiling pot. And you don't want to hear that because that's the literal sound of something fighting for its life. And it's, mm. it blows your brain apart to sit there and think like, Oh shit. Like you, that's a choice. Like you made a choice to sit there and let that happen. Right. Well, in, and I like, I like what both of you said. Cause you know, Manny, you're talking about, you know, it could be cultural and that like America, you know, a lot of things are done behind closed doors here and, 
you know, we kind of have this like repression of death. I don't know. I would argue that, you know, like same thing with burials and anytime, you know, somebody like a human dies, it's, it's the same kind of thing. It's all behind closed doors and, you know, maybe we'll see the body for like, uh, you know, a couple hours when it's like prepared a certain way. But other than that, we just kind of like push all of that underground. And, um, and Danny, you were, you were kind of saying too, that there's a, a certain unease we feel, which is kind of something I wanted to talk about because, uh, uh, David Foster Wallace talks about this quite a bit in that, like, you know, he kind of says like humans have, we have a certain unease with the fact that we, uh, kill and eat animals who, who, uh, you know, have the ability to suffer. And another thing he mentioned, which I thought was kind of interesting is he, he says like, one of the interesting things you can do is kind of look at the language we use. And this was another thing he says in a footnote, and maybe I'll read this footnote as well. Um, Because he's talking about how we use non-mammals, the the non-mammals that we eat, we call them by their animal name, but the mammals that we eat, we call them by things like beef and pork. Um, And how that might be just like, um, you know, kind of our unease with saying like, you know, I'm going to eat pig. I'm going to eat this pig. We kind of say like, I I ate pork. And that allows us to kind of uh, distance ourselves from it a little bit. So this is, uh, he says, is it significant that lobster, fish, and chicken are our culture's words for both the animal and the meat? Whereas most, most mammals seem to require euphemisms like beef and pork that help us separate the meat we eat from the living creature the meat once was. Is this evidence that some kind of deep unease about eating higher animals is endemic uh, enough to show up in English language usage, but that the unease diminishes as we move out of the mammalian order? So, Mm. yeah, what do you think about that? I mean, even just like the terms, um, you know, animal and human, you know, I know like Peter Singer is kind of famous for for saying, you know, we should call what we call animals, we should call non-human animals because, you know, as we all know, humans, we are an animal as well. So to kind of say human and animal is already kind of um, maybe drawing a, a line that is not really is not really there. I have like the perfect example of showing how using your words carefully in very in a very specific way changes people's minds and their reaction to something. So like I was in Florida for a, a work thing and I had my employee with me in my car. We were going to pick up coffee and we went to this drive through um, at this place called caffeine and the guy at the window um, he was taking my order. He was like, okay, what kind of coffee you want? I'm like, oh, I want an oat milk. He's like, oat milk latte. I'm like, perfect. And then my employee's like, oh, I'll just have a regular coffee. He's like, what kind of milk do you want? Do you want cow milk, uh, oat milk, or almond milk? And she was like, ooh, uh, oat milk. And I know she doesn't drink oat milk. Mm. So it was like, the, her reaction was like, ooh. Because it was framed as cow's milk as, as opposed to just milk. Or, yeah, yeah exactly okay, and, yeah. It, it, and he was like do you want cow's milk oat milk almond milk which milk, what milk do you want 
And she was like, oh, she recoiled very instantly. And she was like, oh, I'll take oat milk. I'll try it. And so by naming the demon exactly for what it is, it it breaks that illusion, that cognitive dissonance of like, oh, that's that's a cat. That's coming from a cow's nipple. Yes, yeah, that's gross. Um, and but if it wasn't framed in that manner, she would have never thought twice because, you know, again, like that labeling of like, oh, it's milk versus cow's milk or human milk or, you know, chimpanzee milk. (laughs) (laughs) I don't, I don't know that anybody would have bought the chimpanzee milk, but, (laughs) 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 but yeah, no, I mean, I think that's one of the things I, I find language really fascinating because you can tell a lot about just kind of underlying psychology and, um, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of instances when it comes to, to non-human animals i mean like we said the calling meat meat is uh you know could argue that 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 in itself is maybe euphemistic and also calling an animal it as opposed to like him or her i think that's that's an interesting one as well um in the same thing that I, i think like you were talking danny that it can maybe kind of uh get rid of that cognitive distance pretty quickly if somebody says like oh the you know the chicken lays her egg um people go like her like oh it's a it's like a sentient creature yeah um so yeah language is is really fascinating and how uh, a lot of this kind of seems insignificant to to kind of harp on like the difference between calling something him or her or it but uh yeah i don't know i i I, you know, in David Foster Wallace, he's, I, I, this is kind of the first I've read of him, but I like how, uh, he's not very, he's not very like dogmatic. I mean, like a lot of the, the propositions and things that he kind of asserts in this essay, he, he kind of poses them as questions. He's not saying like, this is the case. He's just saying, he says like, perhaps, or like, could it be so that, um, but yeah, so I don't know. I, I guess I'm not 100% certain about all these claims either, but I, I like that he, uh, approaches this from a very kind of like open, open mind or open stance. I, I think what he does, he, he, um, he, he begs, he begs the reader to question what they how they, how they think. And when he was when it was when he ended it with the gourmet statement, it got me thinking about, huh, that's so true. If gourmet is supposed to encompass the entire part of the experience, then why is it that they need to hide part of it? Mm. And I think he's asking some people, he's begging people to say to just think about it because you deserve to know whether you've been programmed to think otherwise or to desensitize yourself to do through the use of language or the misuse of language. Um, and that he just wants people to be more enlightened and more conscious of what they're doing. That's what it sounds like. But he can't say it in a, by, in a way that is super suggestive. Otherwise, people would just shut down. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I, yeah, I liked that at the end, the, the part you're referring to. At the very end, he kind of says, okay, well, if kind of the point of reading a magazine like Gourmet is to be very conscious about the, the food that you're eating, uh, shouldn't we also be kind of conscious about you know, where the food comes from, you know, whether the food we're eating suffers and all this, rather than just being conscious about like, 
mm, does this have more of an earthy taste or a sweet taste? Uh, which is, which is, I, I guess, what you know. A lot of people that are are foodies. I, I don't think a lot of foodies would kind of consider the uh, what this is this article is about as kind of existing in the same space. Yeah, I respect people who, I mean, who even who even take the initiative to understand even where their coffee comes from. In a not in a very pretentious way, but in a in a I want to understand and encompass the entire process and make a conscious decision. If you decide to still do whatever you're doing, at least you're doing it consciously. Versus people take the hot, they take this the the road most traveled, and the, it's the unconscious approach. I'm just going to listen to what someone tells me to do, and I'm going to blame them if everything goes wrong. And mm. that, that's what happens a lot, even within the the small things like coffee culture. People tend to just ignore the fact of the abuse or the the, the damaging effects on, on the environment when we cultivate so much coffee in, in certain regions of the world. Um, but we're going to ignore it because somebody said we should ignore it. And then I'm going to blame someone else when all of this comes to light. And that that's fine. You can do that. But there are going to be people out there going to say, mm, we knew better. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I, I, I think that's really important too in that like, you know, having, having all of the information at hand. I think- yeah. Um, and you know, I guess can bit of a confession since I've known you guys, I, I actually do eat fish and chicken now, um, you know, for some, for some health reasons, but, and you know, we can maybe talk about that as well. I'd love to, but I think, I think what I have the biggest problem with is anytime there is kind of like, you know, an ethical decision to make if, either not all the information is on the table or if some of that information is purposefully being suppressed. So, yeah. you know, I, I think it's part of the, the, the thing in terms of this, this about, you know, the ethics of eating animals. I think part of the thing that's disturbing is that, you know, like a lot of these kind of meat manufacturers are kind of notorious for, going out of their way to make sure the public is not informed about all the information about kind of like, you know, like making it illegal for people to film what happens in slaughterhouses and stuff, you know, yeah. which would be a completely different experience than like, you know, everybody has all of the information at hand and then they can make their own like informed decision. It's very much just like, we're going to kind of do everything so that you can not make an informed uh, decision. Yeah, I totally, I, I can respect the fact that sometimes people, different cultures have different access to different information or they just have other things they have to worry about. I mean, I grew up in a very poverty. And so worrying about where my, my food came, my meat was slaughtered at wasn't on the top of my top of my list. Um, mm. So I, I can respect, I can understand that part. But when you get to a certain point in your, your development, where you have to take responsibility and make those choices consciously. Mm. And if we keep saying the information isn't readily available, that's true. It isn't. They, there's millions and millions of dollars to suppress information, but it's there somewhere. You right. just have to figure out which one you're looking for to support your your own um, your own. Uh, what is it like? Like if you really like if you want to prove something right or wrong, you're going to find the information to do that. Mm, yeah. So it's also, what are you searching for? You're searching for validation or you're searching for clear, clarity. And it's hard when people realize they have to make a choice consciously because we technically, 
we want to, but we don't because it impacts our daily life. And that can be disruptive. And that's really bad for human psychology to, you know, just shake things up like that. And I, so I can, I get why people make an unconscious attempt to, to dismiss information, even if it is factual, because it doesn't support their, what their daily life or what they're going through. Cause they have to make a choice then. Mm. And I get that. And it's hard to be a person. And so the same thing goes for the people, these amazing gourmet chefs who are boiling lobsters alive. It's their livelihood. And you're asking someone to say, Hey, let me change everything about what, how I, do. yes, we are. Yeah. Step it up. Cause there's a better way to do everything. We just have to be willing to be the first person to say, I'm going to do that. And it's hard. I get it. I get it. I'm, I can see both sides. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and, and yeah, I think, I think that's a good point too. In that like a lot of these kind of, uh, you know, ethical decisions and kind of like, you know, finding out where your food comes from. Um, you know, sadly, a lot of that does require like free time. And, you know, if you're, if you're kind of like struggling just to get by and, you know, maybe living in a third world country or, or, you know, even in America, like living paycheck to paycheck, uh, working around the clock, like, yeah, I, I respect that, you know, not everybody has the kind of time and luxury to do that or necessarily the, uh, the, the money to do that. And I mean, we can talk about that too, but it is, you know, it is definitely, I think more expensive to eat healthy in, in this country than it is to, to, you know, eat garbage, which is sad as well. Yeah. (laughs) Um, cool. Well, let's maybe talk about, um, so he talks a, a decent amount about whether or not lobsters feel pain. And this is kind of leaving aside the fact that like we're ending the lobster's life. I don't think there's any den- anybody who's denying that. <laughs> so, you know, we can kind of separate the argument as like, is it wrong to end the lobster's life? And then, you know, if I guess somebody says no to that, then the other question comes up, well, is it wrong to, you know, boil this, sentient creature alive and uh so he he kind of gets into some of the debate around suffering and he says like there are kind of two different ways we can break it down in terms of uh when you're trying to figure out like whether or not an animal is capable of suffering the two ways he says are you can commonly approach this is to ask like do they uh do they have like the kind of hardware or biology that is kind of needed to feel pain? So this would be like, you know, like it, is their brain essentially like capable of, of experiencing pain? And then the second thing is more of just like, does it look like they're experiencing pain? Yeah. Um, so, so he's, I think the second one's probably an easier thing to, to look at. So maybe we could start there. I mean, he, he says, we, and we kind of touched on this earlier that, you know, when you drop a lobster into a boiling pot, like it doesn't just kind of sit there and just like, Oh, this is cool. Like it is in dis- a lot of distress it's its and it's fighting for its life. It's trying to get out. And he says like this, we can call this like a preference. It has a preference to like not be in boiling hot water. Um, so that's, I think, one way I guess you can argue to the point that like this this animal is suffering in that like pain is pain is 
the thing that we experience that makes us want to move. Um, and yeah, yeah. If he can't, if the lobster can't feel pain, then he wouldn't feel the boiling hot water. So the lobster would just be in like a regular pot of water, which when you see a lobster just hanging in a bucket of water, it's not flailing its arms. It's not moving left and side to side. So doesn't that kind of just cancel that shit out already? It's like, it may not feel the pain, but it's feeling know, but something. Like it feels neurologically because it moves from one part of the, the ocean to the next, depending on the temperature. And so it feels something biologically mm. that's going on. Yeah. So that's like, that, 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 I mean, that I don't know what pain is. Like, I don't know the pain response. So I don't know what, how people determine how they, how they clarify it. How well, they yeah. Jump. Well, and he says too, like that's kind of part of the thing that's tricky with pain is that pain is a purely subjective experience, and that like we can't we can we can look at different things like you know neurons firing, but we can't actually like look at pain under a microscope, so to speak. Um, So that's one of the things, and I mean I, I know this is true with like chronic pain as well. Like I've had chronic pain as well, where it was like I had this very unpleasant subjective experience. But to any like doctor who was kind of looking at me, they were like, well, we don't see anything that's physically wrong with you or we don't see anything to suggest that you should be experiencing pain right now. But my subjective experience very much was, you know, pain and and, and discomfort. Yes. However, animals, animals don't have um, Mm self-awareness and they're not hypochondriacs where humans have the ability to develop. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Yeah. We, our brains are, 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 way, are more developed, so we process information differently. Mm. And we understand what sympathy gets us. I don't think – well, we, we can argue that a lobster being in a, in a, in a boiling pot isn't trying to get sympathy from right. the person's side by making, making it seem as if it's struggling or maybe preferring not to be in the pot. So it's like, I would like to, I would like to say it's philosophy, but it's kind of like, stop, let's try not to, let's not break this down to the point where we don't know what's really going on so we can feel better about the process. And this isn't yeah. just me being even a vegan person. This is just, I'm watching this. I'm observing it because I've seen other things in pain. And I'm like, this is showing signs of some sort of struggle. I don't want to be in this situation for a reason of my existence. So let's remove me. Right, right. Well, in some of the, so he says like, okay, well, since it's subjective, like a subjective experience, then we can't like kind of measure it and quantify it like we could some other things. And the other thing he says, you know, there's, there's a language barrier. So like, if you are like, I don't know, like punching me, I could be like, yo, bro, like that hurts. And you can, you can, you can easily gather what is happening with my subjective experience. Whereas, you know, like a lobster, you know, it doesn't have vocal cords. It's not able to just be like, yo, bro, that hurts when you uh, <laughs> drop me in the water. Um, so part of it is just like, there's a, there's a language barrier uh, happening. And, you know, I think with, with different kinds of animals, there's less of a language barrier. You know, I think something like, uh, like you brought up chimpanzee, something like a chimpanzee, when a chimpanzee feels pain, what it looks like on their face is very similar to ours. So I think that's one of the reasons why we are able to kind of empathize with chimpanzee pain more than lobster pain and that it's just 
uh, you know, we're, too real. we're, we're <laughs> yeah, it's, it's too it's real. To we can't, we can't kind of, it's very close to home. And, you know, we're naturally, since we're humans, we kind of anthropomorphize everything. So we kind of say like, well, that face, that is, uh, that is pain. And like, I know pain cause that's how I would look if I was, you know, suffering the way that that chimpanzee is suffering. But with a lobster, like we can't, we can't really do that because of the way that they experience pain is just so different from the way that we do. Oh yes, we can't do it in the in the the literal sense, but just like the, the, the just like David said, if he was in a boiling pot of water, he would want to be struggling to get out. So mm-hmm. we can find relationships between us and them. And you know, here's the here's the real truth: we shouldn't have to find relationships because we're an, an intelligent being, and we're supposed to be the most intelligent being. And by 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 needing to have um, verifiable evidence that it's 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 in pain says something about us about mm-hmm. our choices yeah and we can look at something and say look i don't recognize the 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 the, the re- pain response that i would see from another human being or a chimpanzee or an ape but i can tell there's something going on here and but that's why that's where we're supposed to look at anything and say and try to relate it back to ourselves well that's what all things do well that's what all humans do i also think there's it's a maybe this is just me and i like to go down rabbit holes and shit but like the the justification because, oh, it doesn't feel any pain. Therefore, we, you know, to me, I don't know why, but that always goes into like some weird, like if, a, you know, if if a woman is knocked out, not comparing, you know, lobster people or chefs to like rapists, but it's kind of in the same ballpark of thinking like, well, she didn't feel anything, you know, when I raped her when she was asleep. So it's OK. Like there's that small weird justification. It's not the same thing by any means necessary, but it's kind of in the same ballpark of like just because something doesn't feel pain, does it make it right? Like no. Yeah, yeah. Maybe. I mean, if the the thing I came up with was like, yeah, if you were to like kill somebody in their sleep and they didn't feel any pain, yeah. but they still died, like I don't think a lot of people would argue like, oh, I didn't do anything wrong. They didn't feel pain. Like no, you're still ending their life. So, so yeah, it might be a bit of a red herring to kind of, uh, spend so much time on the pain that they feel during death. And then to, then it is to just kind of ask the question, like, was it wrong to kind of end the life of a, of a non-human animal or not? Yeah, I think that's, yeah, I think you're right. Like I think once people agree that it's okay, then we can move on to the next subject. But if you can't agree that it's okay, then we're not, it's, it's just unethical. Yeah. But that's just, that's what we can talk yeah. about ethics, but. Well, yeah. And well, so maybe let's talk about, um, and, you know, like one of the reasons I really wanted to get you guys on is because, you know, I know you've thought about all these things, uh, you know, I think a lot more than the average person. And um, yeah, I mean, this is, it's it's one of those areas I, I find just hard having discussions about because I think a lot of people get very defensive about, yeah. about it and, you know, don't really want to talk about um, but one of the things that, uh, David Foster Wallace said is he, he says like, basically he says at one point, like you can't really argue that you need to eat m- meat or animals in order to survive and be healthy. And this is, I guess the only real argument I see for eating animals and, um, I I don't think you need them to survive. I think you can definitely survive without eating animals, but 
Um, I guess I'm still skeptical if, uh, like, you can be healthy without eating any animals. And I, I had some health issues when I was was vegan, which was part of the reason, um, you know, and seeing a nutritionist to kind of get off of this stomach medication that I'm on, which is a whole nother thing. But oh yeah, um, the acid reflux and all that jazz. I yeah, remember that. yeah. So you know, I cut out like gluten, dairy. I mean, I was already off dairy, but you know, all the all the uh, pretty much like all carbs and um, and soy and like nuts. It's very restrictive diet, and you know, she's like, you know, you really should include some fish and like your iron levels. Like my iron levels were like through the floor. Like my ferritin and stored iron. Um, so you know, I for me like for the last like almost year now, you know, I've been eating, I've been eating meat, and uh, I still haven't measured my my blood levels uh, since switching to meat. So I, you know, that's one of the things I'm curious to see if it it makes a difference. But I think it's mm-hmm. worth raising that point because I, you know, I think for me that's probably the strongest argument I see for for eating eating meat and you know killing uh sentient beings what is it what is it for health reasons yeah yeah but then you're you're talking about people determining what health is and if you're if you're on the brink of death i can see but it's it's weird because it's like you know because remember remember we can conjure up things in our minds and we have a lot of people on our planet who do that and so it's very hard to like say well should we take send send someone to a psychologist or a psychiatrist to determine whether they're truly unhealthy or if it's psychosomatic or if it's a, if it's a hypochondria, you know, any of those things. Cause we have so many, our brains are so developed. Mm. It's very, and on top of that, um, we can come, we can convince ourselves we're, we're, we're sick and become sick through the process of convincing ourselves we're sick. And so we have a, we have a physical response to our, our, our thoughts in the way we process information, but that can easily like that, that, that girl who, who her mom kept her sick for a while. Oh, like you think you're... no, I mean, I mean, I, I, I like to be careful in these conversations because it's like, we're, what, what's really the, what the real conversation is, is that you have somebody like Zach who lived a vegan lifestyle and then came across um, some health issues that was just like, fuck, like I, need to incorporate some things. And I remember he had, we had conversations a long time about, you know, his, the acid reflux that he had and a lot of things that he had health wise. And then he switched over to something to eating like fish and chicken. And then, so what happens is once you're in a community like veganism, um, then you, for your own personal health reasons, you cross over and start incorporating things that are not vegan into your diet. And then there's like this whole, like damnation, like vegans are supposed to be like the most compassionate people in the world. But in reality, we know a lot of vegans, there are a lot of fucking assholes. So it's like you go from being in this amazing community to incorporating things that are not considered what you would, would be okay in the community mm. um, for your own personal health reasons. And then, and there's a, you know, like, then there's that always that conversation that has to be had. It's like, the person is you can talk to a person you can't really talk to people when you Mm -hmm. incorporate more than one person into the conversation or like a group of people that's when things just start going into like the bad spectrum of like 
ethics and like, oh, you're not an ethical person because if you were a really ethical person, you know, you would die for the cause. And I'm like, hmm, no, I'll have some fucking chicken. I'll chill out. Because at the end of the day, veganism is not meant to be like a cult. You have to follow a certain set of sure. rules. There's no leader. There's nobody, you know. Um, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, no, I totally get what you're saying. Like, yeah. I'm not even suggesting that you're that you're hypochondriac. <laughs> <laughs> what I'm suggesting is that when we talk about globally, we do talk about people who literally lie themselves, lie to the public about having cancer. So people don't have ethics. So what 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 stops people? Who decides that someone is truly sick? Is it the nutritionist? Is it a nutritionist? Is it the is it a doctor? Is it a psychiatrist? Is it someone who thinks you're mentally you know, there's processes, but there's we talk about billions of people. Yeah. And changing the entire culture of people not eating meat or eating it for health reasons. So I would say, of course, you can you know do whatever do whatever you want in the end. Um, but if we're arguing what what's justifiable for eating meat, then that's hard because it's an individual person's it's, choice. Yeah, it's an individual situation, right? Sure. Well, and I think there's also there's also some examples that kind of make make it easy. Like I don't I don't know that anybody can argue that they need to eat hot dogs to be healthy. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah. So so I I think I think it also is like you kind of have to be honest. Like if you are going to argue, okay, well I eat I'm going to eat meat because it is uh, you know like I believe this you need to eat meat to be healthy and to thrive. Um, yeah, you know, I think you also have to be honest with yourself. It's like, okay, well, I'm eating lobster dipped in butter right now, like melted butter. Which he gets into this too. Is just like, you know, I, I think he was saying like a lot of the people at the lobster festival were trying to push this uh, this kind of message that that lobster is healthy. But he's just like the people that are eating like lobster dipped in melted butter along with like a bag of chips, a soda, and uh, like a roll with with butter and it's just like i don't i don't know that anybody can can really argue that like i i need to eat that some, something like that for their health um yep. but i i wanted to bring it up because he does say in this footnote uh he says even the most diehard carnophile will acknowledge that it is possible that it's possible to live and eat well without consuming animals um which i don't know maybe the uh kind of carnivores and paleo people were a lot less vocal in 2003 but i think a lot of people would um kind of raise raise issue with that so i think it's at least worth kind of distinguishing um yeah you know eating meat for the pleasure of eating meat and eating meat uh for for health reasons as well um and the other thing he says in this footnote which was kind of i thought interesting because uh, he's saying, you know, a lot of people who who make the argument that, uh, you know, it's it's that we should eat animals. They say, well, um, you know, humans, you know, humans are smarter, or you know, we have these different cognitive faculties which make us superior to animals. So a human life is more important than an animal's life. But David Was Foster Wallace, he says, well, no, actually, the the proper kind of comparison would not be a human life for an animal's life. It would be like an animal's life for like 10 or 15 minutes of human pleasure. Mm. You know? Boom, 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 boom. So it's, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. So I think because that's the more proper, I think that's the more proper uh, comparison because it's not like, 
yeah, it's not really like is your life more important than 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 animals? It's kind of more of a yeah, it yeah. I I don't know. So I thought that was a an interesting thing he kind of pointed to. That that is interesting because that 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 gets murky because there's times where people are like, when like the first the first heart transplant was like done on like a, a baboon heart or not a baboon heart like a like a you know like a monkey heart or chimpanzee heart or maybe a pig heart I can't remember exactly which one but it was like that like you know like doing medical experimentations on animals clearly is bad right. Um, but then they're like, we wouldn't have heart transplants if it wasn't for the fact that we did it with like, and we tested on animals first. Right. And then the, this, the, the whole straight up dichotomy of like, well, my life is worth more than that lobster. So I'm going to eat the lobster because it's worth more than your life. Lobster. Sorry. Suck it. It's not the same thing, but like, if, but if you, sometimes people will compare them, it's like, well, my life is more. I'm like, well, Sometimes, if you're an asshole, then no, it isn't, bro. Like, so, <laughs> I'd rather have a dog than a, than a, than a you know, than an asshole um, person driving right next to me. So uh, maybe that's just me. <laughs> that's, maybe that's a psycho in me. Right. Who knows? Well, I know uh, Peter Singer, who's kind of like one of the kind of fathers of the modern animal rights movement. He wrote like Animal Liberation and all that stuff. Like he he even says in an interview, uh, he was saying something like. I could see there being cases where it is ethical to use animals for experiments. Like if, if, you know, like you said, if it was like, we need to use a pig to, uh, you know, figure out how to do the transplant surgery. But he says, the problem I have is that like so many of the kind of animal testing we do is not like, they're not at that, those stakes at all. It's like, you know, testing mascara and whatnot. So, yeah, I th- he's he's basically saying like, yeah, maybe you can make the argument if it is a truly kind of if there's actually like a kind of dire need to do the experiment. But uh, I think he's just saying we're we're just very, yeah, we just kind of use animals for for any experiment. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, and we don't have anybody to truly draw the line. And so if we can't draw the line, then we probably shouldn't do it at all. And this is just me being, this is me, per, my personal opinion is that if sure. we have heart issues within our, within our biology, then that's just us having heart issues within our biology. I wish we would, we can, we were able to figure it out without having to do that. Hmm. And I, I'm not even, fuck that. I'm not even saying that if somebody has a heart transplant and, you know, too, too bad for you, you don't, you don't get a heart transplant. What I'm saying is that if we don't learn how to avoid these things and evolve past needing to experiment on animals, we're never going to evolve. As long as we mistreat animals, we're always going to mistreat each other. And we haven't gotten to the point hmm. where we treat each other well enough to treat animals philosophy mm. and it's and it's a muddy situation because everyone's going to argue of course everyone's going to argue that the, the 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 um the progress we made with experiments and animals before we did humans even the even the the the, the covid vaccination um was experiment on animals first however we have to accept the fact that we're not evolved as we think we are if we're still doing these things and that we have to put we have to put barriers in line within um, scientific scientific experiments that stop people from doing what we what we just talked about. What we do have, we have there is boundaries. 
there is a long list of things you have to you have to fill in order to use any testing on animals. However, there's a lot of unethical people who don't even care who just do it. And that's the real question, because it isn't whether we're eating animals to survive. It's 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 um, it's why do we still feel like we have to? Why haven't we evolved? Why do we, I'm sorry, why do we think we're as evolved as we are when we're still doing the things that 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 for me personally don't show an, an evolved species? And I'm not, again, I'm just trying to break it down to the lowest level and put us on the same level as animals so we can respect it. So if we're going to do it, we can avatar this son of a bitch. And if we're going to kill an animal, can we at least have a ceremony for it? Sure. <laughs> sure, sure. Something. Well, My you, goodness, can your pet head as it dies or something? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. And that the, yeah, I mean, and you can look at it, talking about culturally, you can look at different cultures or even at different periods of time where, you know, they, you know, like the Native Americans, you know, you killed and ate animals, but there was a certain respect for it. And, you know, yeah. even to the point where some of the animals were thought of as gods. And you see that in Hindu culture as well. It's really, really interesting with like the, the cow being worshipped and, you know, they, they still eat or drink cow's milk, which, you know, we can debate the ethics of that, but, but they, they kind of revere the cow and see it as this, this yeah. sacred, the sacred animal. Um, but I wanted to maybe kind of get your thoughts on he, cause he kind of, like I said, he's a very, this, this piece, I, it's called consider the lobster. And I think he, it's a great kind of think piece. Like he asks a lot more questions than he tries to answer, which is, I think what he's really trying to do. Like you said earlier, he's trying to kind of get his audience to think. And he talks kind of about the future and I think it's a really interesting thing to think about is like, you know, we can kind of, it's easy for us to sit here in the 21st century and look at something like slavery and see how horrible that was. Uh, But while it was happening, it was, you know, it was normal. It was, it was just like what everybody did. And there were people that were kind of gung ho about it. And then you had other people like, like Thomas Jefferson, who was kind of against it, but just kind of went along with it just because that was kind of what everybody did. Um, and he, David Foster Wallace at the end, uh, he kind of, he says, this is this quote, he says, is it possible that future generations will regard our, pre- our present agribusiness in eating practices in much the same way we now view Nero's entertainment or Mengele's experiments? Uh, which I thought that was a powerful sentence to say like, all right, well, let's see if, if we can imagine like fast forwarding a hundred years from now, like, are we going to look back and be like, I cannot believe we, you know, had factory farms and ever like really like treated animals that the way we do now. I would say the short answer is yes, because of, because of what you said earlier about Native Americans and Hindu religion, they've already respected animals and they still ate them and yet we went backwards Mm. we decided to not respect them eat them and treat them horribly throughout their entire life so it's almost like we got stuck somewhere in between like old wisdom and what's going to happen in the future and i think with the the, the, these kids i believe what i'm noticing these kids are becoming more and more enlightened and more and more conscientious of everything they're doing yes they're complaining a lot we understand that (laughs) but becoming more and more conscious of what they're doing so i think what that comes with is empathy 
And they're not, I'm not looking for perfection within our society because we're human. It's never going to happen. But can we find a space in between, which is what I think when you have like a, um, uh, an understanding of the, the life of the animal, what mm-hmm. the animal means to the human body, if you are consuming it and, and, and whatever your belief systems are after that, you know, whether it goes to wherever it goes, but just that kind of like, I know it's so kind of weird, but that sort of ceremonial experience, it adds like, it, 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 it tells us that we're, that it's not just about us. Mm. It's, it's about everything on the planet, but we also have to look out for ourselves. Mm. So it's, it's like ecocentric in a way, but also it's holistic. But if we, but what happened was that somebody hijacked that theory of us wanting to consume things. And they, be, and that's where the, the animal farming came from. It's because humans want to know where everything comes from, but we don't, but we, we're scared to know now because of the way it's being treated. But we went from, from knowing to not knowing, and we're going to go back to knowing. At least that's what I believe. So I don't think we're going to look at look at the past and shame, but we are going to look at it as like what you know what did we do? We should we should have known because it because we know slavery, for instance, we should have known that because slavery never worked. For the last four thousand years, it's been in place. It has never worked, mm. and yet we did it again. So we should have known better, but we decided not to. So yes, we can look back now and, and we can shame those people in sense of like you guys that was choice ignorance. And we did that again, but we can't demean, we, you know, we, you know what I'm saying? We, we got to respect the fact that, um, that, um, that we all came from all of that. <laughs> so yeah. I'm yes. And no, mm-hmm. I'm going to say yes. And no, because if I've studied human beings, I notice we, as a fucking species, we, we don't change unless something big happens. So like 2020, was a thing it was the year of the shit but as we're coming out of it the the thing that i'm noticing the most because in my job you know hr and corporate culture and whatnot is that people hated their jobs they hated their jobs for years and everybody's saying like, we all should just do a walkout and we all should just quit and no one's really did anything about it mm. until they all had to go home because of a giant global pandemic Everybody went home, everybody started working from home, and then they started when they were forced to see how life can be when you work from home or when you have the time to do a load of laundry in between calls. It's a whole different world. And when you've seen the better part of that, you're you don't want to go back. So people are there's an exodus right now of people quitting their jobs or waiters not going back to their jobs because it was a shitty experience. Mm. And they took a global pandemic for these people to really see that the way that they worked was shitty. And I think, unfortunately, when it comes to food and human nature, we're not going to change until something dramatic happens, like where the the, the cows start fighting back or the chickens um, <laughs> start, you know, the, the chickens start you know, evolving some sort of disease where it can be transferred over to humans. Yeah. You know, something like where it's going to be a global event, a global or at least a cultural event within one country um, to kind of have that push to force us into a better understanding of like, oh, you know, like if all the if all the pigs and all the and all the the, the chickens and all the, the the all the animals, you know, they died mm. right now and nobody had beef supplies for only six months. And then all the beef supply is gone. And then everybody has to eat soy riso and they have to eat, you know, Beyond Burger. They'll think, oh, this is great. This is beautiful. I'm a lot, I love this. This is, this is awesome. 
Um, and then all of a sudden the cows come back <laughs> and then the cows and the chickens start coming back. Then they'll probably be like, man, we're good, bro. We're good. Well, well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think you're right. I think it could be, it could be weird kind of pushed to have to find a way to figure it out from something negative happening. Uh, or, uh, I guess another alternative is something like, uh, lab, lab grown meat, which I don't know if you guys have kind of heard of that, but, but there's, yeah. yeah, there's a lot of kind of research right now going, going into like, how can we, uh, essentially like grow meat in a lab? So, so we're not actually having to, you know, kill any animals and we're also not having to, um, you know, house and feed animals. So it's also better for the environment. Um, you know, the big thing with that is just like, you know, right now it's like what, like $300,000 for a, a hamburger from a lab grown meat. So I, I would think like if they are able to kind of get that down to the point where it is not only more competitive, but also cheaper, like, I don't know. My thinking is if, cheaper if than regular meat, then maybe, yeah, right. If they're able to make it cheaper than, than, you know, regular meat and just as like tasty or tastier like i i think that could be that thing that kind of changes changes everything um because you know sadly like we were kind of talking about earlier most people are when they're talking about what they want to eat they're i don't know i'm kind of speculating here but i I think the most important things to most people are price how much does it cost and does it taste good and then may- yeah. maybe third in that list of things is, is it good for me? And probably fourth is like, you know, is it bad for the environment or, you know, sentient creature that I'm killing? So I don't know, maybe that's a cynical view of kind of human nature, but I think, I think like if we can, economics right there. Right. Yeah. So if we can, problem, you know, if, humanity, <laughs> what's that? Like the, the, the need for, to, for more, it literally hijacked our sense of self and because it wasn't always this way mm. like we did we do we, there are people still on earth who have a profound respect for animals even if they do kill them mm. there's just this different relationship that we don't have we have more relationship with money and then we do with um and then the funny thing is that there's a system in place that preys on people's fears and worries and that thing prevents people from learning that they can survive with a, a better relationship with with animals but people don't it's like it's, it's distractive culture Mm. And we keep going into this idea that, that, um, you know, my, my, we, you, rice and beans, you know, that's a full pro that's a, um, you know, complete protein and we can get rice and beans at a very, very low rate. They're pretty, pretty cheap. Um, so we can argue that, that people are poor because that's, that's obvious. Um, but it, um, it, what happens is that people want more money. Mm. So they're going to sell more stuff to people and people are going to buy more stuff and have to go to work and then be busy and be exhausted. And then people are going to have more families, have to feed their family. It's just a cycle, but we need to, I don't know how to halt it because it, like Daniel said, I think it's going to take like, just like Dar- Darwin said, it, it takes these, these huge upheavals within our environment in order for pe- things to evolve and humans are on the precipice. The thing, yeah. the thing about humanity is that we're keeping ourselves alive through, through modern technology and through science and had had this not we would have been dead like look at i mean look look at all the heart diseases within our country we take medicine to contract something we're causing mm. so it's it's funny that that we're not we're not really evolving at all we're just keeping ourselves alive as long as we can but the sad thing is that we do need to stop 
so that we can see the upheaval. It's almost like the upheaval is happening. We're killing the environment. We're killing ourselves, but we don't see it because we're keeping the delusion alive. And it's my job as a person to not to, to make sure I'm introducing people back into the sense of reality that mm-hmm. they can have what they want. They can have the experience with the animals that they want, but they have to do it consciously. And I think that there's too many people that are not me that are counteracting my beliefs about the fact that, um, oh, we can't do it. We can't do it because I never I'm, I'm not pessimistic. I'm super optimistic in terms of humanity. There's no way because even a chef will look at a pot and see a, a thing boiling and easily the room. That is the connection you, that humans have. Mm. We have it innately with inside of ourselves and we want to feel the connection with animals. But something keeps telling us not to. And it's going to take a, an army brigade of people going out there and saying, look, we can still make this connection. And my job isn't to judge people who eat animals. My job is to judge people who decide that um, I'm not going to pay attention to anything because it's not mm. just the animal consumption. That's the problem It's you're not paying attention to any of it at all. Like sure. the animals are just the tip of the iceberg. You're not paying attention to the fact that half of the Amazon is being destroyed, not even just for agriculture, just, just for just for human purposes at all. And you're not paying attention. And guess what? You have to pay attention because someone's telling you don't. And my job is to say you can pay attention and still live an amazing life. Mm. And it's hard because every day there's another thing of, of news coming out that's scaring people, that's freaking them out. But that's not how you're going to get people to change. You get small changes over short periods of time, and then we go back to normal. Small changes, because the same thing with what, I, what Daniel was saying about the coronavirus. I mean, I, I respect the fact that people are realizing that some of these jobs weren't, weren't worthy of, of, you know, of some people's time. Mm-hmm. However, we're going to go back into the same patterns over and over again. Like even slavery, we replace, we replace slavery with our own slavery. It just got shifted because we can't help it. We can't because we don't go to the root of it. The root of it is we want to connect with people. Mm. We want to connect with the things we eat. We want to connect the stupid trees outside because those things are what keeps us alive. But something says you don't have to connect with them because you're higher than them. And we need to bring ourselves down to the level of we ain't no different so we can evolve with it. But we're never going to do that if we keep focusing on, on the problem. And the only problem, well, there's only one problem. We're not connecting with the things that are around us. Right. Well, and you know, you brought up consciousness a lot. Is that, you know, like, you know, maybe there's a point in, in kind of our, you know, it's different from culture to culture, but maybe there's a point that we were more conscious of you just like living a lot more deliberately, more consciously. And we kind of, yeah, we, we fell asleep a little bit. We kind of, yeah, maybe in the case of animals kind of started looking at animals as property, as it, as this thing for me. And you know, I think it's a matter of like becoming more conscious. And I think, you know, one of the things he's trying to do in in this piece is expand people's consciousness to maybe have not thought about these issues. And I, I don't know. I like, I really like this piece, you know, partially because he, he raises so many kind of good issues, but also um, I think this is a great piece. If, you know, anybody's listening who has not kind of ever thought about the ethics as far as eating animals go or is not really familiar with any of the literature, I think this would be a great piece to start with as opposed to, you know, something like uh, animal liberation or something, which is, you know, (laughs) great as well. But uh, this, this is a, a, it kind of maybe eases people into the, the experience. And he, (laughs) I don't know, kind of, I don't know if he was meaning to be kind of sneaky, but he starts the piece very much just talking about this lobster festival and then he's just kind of like oh by the way here's this cool stuff about lobsters oh by the way like ethics of eating yeah. a sentient thing so he, he's very much uh 
I think he's very aware of like how he delivered this piece. I think he did a good job not to turn people off right away or to make people super defensive right away. Just by yeah. saying, like, I think at one point he even says, I'm not here to preach. He even says, like, I eat animals. But, um, you know, I think these are the kind of questions that we should be asking ourselves and and yeah. uh, thinking about. Um, it's, it's so true. Um, Daniel has this thing, like, you vote with every purchase you make. Mm. And it's, it's so true. Like, even when it comes, because it's not about not doing something. It's about asking yourself, why am I doing it? And if you can answer that question, you're fine. Yeah. If you say, sure. if you say, I genuinely love lobster, I love it so much. I enjoy the whole experience of getting it, putting it in a pot and boiling it up. Yeah. Or if you're like, I love it all except for that. And just be honest about it and just be like, I don't ever want to do it. I'm not going to change, but it's, or at least be like, you know what? I'm conscious that I'm doing this. Well, we can't because it's the cognitive dissonance between what you know to be um, ethical. Otherwise, you wouldn't have an issue with it. And I think that's where where people have, that's where people get defensive is that somebody brings up somebody's insecurities without knowing they're doing it, and then the person it block you know gets rid of all the agreements and just sticks with the insecure the, the one thing that they don't they don't agree with, and it becomes this sort of mass argument. But it really is if somebody's arguing, it's because there's something inside of them that they're not comfortable with. We all understand some basic psychology, so we know that that's just a reflect, you know, a reflection of what's going on within them. And but the funny thing is, it's what's going on within all of us. We're not asking the question, and we can, I can, I can argue right here and say, if you are consciously aware, if you're okay with the animal, like bulls getting sh- shot in the head, or bulls being like put into those pens and suffering the way that they do, if you're consciously aware, uh, okay with that, then I say you're a different type of species. You go on, you eat your meat, you do your thing, boo boo. Um, but the thing is, I don't believe that's going to happen. I don't mm-hmm. believe that. If people ask those questions, they're going to be 100% comfortable with it. But I think they'll change the relationship they have with it, with the experience itself. And it is always about the relationship, even as a chef, as somebody who, you know, as a chef or somebody Mm -hmm. who's just doing it at home. Because like the guy said, like David said, it changes the experience because you're taking it home Mm -hmm. and you're becoming the experience itself. You're boiling, you're doing all of it. And I think that's what brings up the question of like, you know, have you ever thought about what's going on doing that? You know, have you thought about how you feel, like yeah. the real true feeling? Because it seems like the reason why people walk out of the room or people put the lid on or people ignore it is because it's normal to do that. Mm. But nobody ever says, well, why are we ignoring it? Right, right. Yeah. No, it's, yeah. I mean, it's it's hard to be, it's hard to be conscious. It's easier to, uh, I mean, and this goes not with just eating animals or anything. It's, it's just any kind of yes political issue any ethical issue i mean just life in general you know it's yeah. it's easy to just kind of tune out and kind of close your ears and say i don't want to think about that i don't want to worry about it but it's hard to yeah it's hard to live consciously and um but i i don't know i think it's worth it oh it'll fuck you up you but it is worth it everybody who's listening to this if you decide to become conscious of any of this, please get help. Do not do this. Don't alone. do it alone. Don't do it alone. <laughs> there is a rabbit hole that is beyond your your comprehension. It is like a black hole, uh, and that's how you get QAnon people. And that's how you get QAnon people. <laughs> that's how you get people who go off on a, on a just get some help, get some some support, some family, some friends, get people in the conversation, and be open minded and read the book um, "Difficult Conversations." 
Thanks for listening to Unpacking Ideas. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend or scroll down and write a review or give us a five-star rating. All that helps tremendously, so thanks so much in advance. If you'd like to read along with us, please visit unpackingideas.com, where I post links to the future pieces that we'll be discussing on future podcast episodes. And finally, if you would like to hear more from my guests, Danny and Manny, check out theveganjents.com, where they blog and post all kinds of awesome recipes. I would recommend the Mayan tacos. Super, super good. Um, Yeah, that's going to do it for this week. I will see you guys next episode.